Uh, this is the second part of the hand of God was upon us. We're walking through the book of Ezra, Old Testament book of Ezra. And just a recap from a couple weeks ago, we talked about <clears throat> Israel, um, specifically the nation of Judah, Judah Benjamin. Um, they went into captivity. Babylon came, took them into captivity. There was kind of three different times they came over a series of six, seven years, and they took more into captivity and more into captivity, and eventually just kind of burned Jerusalem to the ground, burned the temple to the ground. And, um, and this was prophesied. This was going to happen. Um, Isaiah said that this was going to happen a couple years, a couple hundred years before it happened. Jeremiah was alive at that time, and, and leading up to it, he said, uh, we're going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And they didn't believe him. They didn't like that kind of talk. And, and, uh, but it happened. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and took out all the, cap, all, uh, the people of, of Judah. They went into captivity. Um, long story short. But also was prophesied through Isaiah that, that there would come a time when a specific man by the name and named him Cyrus, would make an edict and make it possible for the captives to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple, and that he would do this without bribery and would do it without reward. And uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, he was speaking, and he said, we're going to go into captivity, he said, for 70 years. And after 70 years, we'll return to our homeland. And sure enough, it had been about 68, 69 years, and Daniel, one of the Jewish captives who had come out and had been in there the whole time, he remembers Jeremiah's prophecy. He prays to God and says, oh God, we came here, we were sent here because we served foreign idols and we turned away from you and you allowed for us to be taken captive that we might return to you. And he remembered Jeremiah's prophecy and he says, oh my word, it's about 70 years. We're about to go back. Now, Lord, forgive us, not because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. Yeah. And, um, and so what happens a guy by the name of Cyrus uh, becomes king, the Medes and Persians, King Cyrus, known as King Cyrus the Great, uh, uh, Cyrus the Elder, the Greeks called him. And um, he's a humble guy, unlike Nebuchadnezzar who said, hey, look at all these nations that I've conquered by my own power and for my own glory. King Cyrus says, look at all these nations that are under my, under my command that God has given to me. Yeah. And so we see a, a different heart in, in Cyrus um, off the bat there, and then it says that God stirred his heart. It says God stirred Cyrus's heart to put forth an edict, a proclamation that all of the Jews could return to their homeland, back to Judah, and they could rebuild the temple. And he said that they were supposed to be resourced to be able to accomplish that. And a cool thing we pointed out last week, there's, um, there's um, the, the cylinder of Cyrus was found in 1879, in Babylonian, they dug this up, and it's cuneiform, and it has those almost verbatim words on it of allowing people to go back to their homelands and build their temples, and that was signed by Cyrus. And so just a cool secular um, source there confirming what we already knew to be true. Yeah. So kind of the main points that we touched on is, as we're learning from them, we're looking at them, they're going back. So revival, restoration for their nation, um, we learn that God had a plan. He knew everything before it happened. He knew what people's hearts were going to look like and how they're going to respond and, and what they would try to do. Um, he had a plan that Isaiah was to prophesy. He had a plan that Jeremiah was to prophesy. He had a, Dan, a, a plan that Daniel was supposed to live for him in Babylon. Yeah. 
and advise kings and, and help those kings to know God and so forth. He had a plan that he knew that when Cyrus came along, he knew the heart position that Cyrus had had. And he said, there's a heart I can stir. So he called it out before it even happened and said, I'm going to use him to write a proclamation and an edict. And then he had a plan that the heads of the houses of the Jewish people, he would stir their hearts to say, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to go back and rebuild. And so God has a sure plan. He stirs his people. And we each have a part to play. It wasn't Cyrus's part to go back and start building the temple himself in Jerusalem. It was his part to put forth an edict, a proclamation, and to help resource, make it legal, and equip the people to go back. But then God had a specific purpose for the heads of the families to say, yes, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to start building. And we're going we're to go back to the ruins and start from nothing um, back there. So we each have a part to play, and we thought, you know what, that's true today, that each of us, God has a plan for us and a desire for us, and he stirs our hearts when they're humble before him. He'll stir them for the things of his kingdom and so we pick up today just uh, the last little part of, of, of Ezra 1, and then we'll jump into 2 and 3. Ezra 1, 7 through 11, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Verse 11, all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Shesh Bazar, which is not easy to say, is a prince of Judah. And I believe Shesh Bazar would be the Babylonian name of who we believe to be Zerubbabel, because from then on, it talks about Zerubbabel leading the Jewish people back and beginning to build the temple and so forth. So, uh, in fact, two verses later, you can look at uh, back to Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says... Now these are the people of the province who came back from captivity of those whom had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were, and then we have about 60 verses that talk about the number of people that went back to specific towns. And there's about 40, 40 different towns, 40 different cities in Judah around. And of course, Jerusalem was the hub, and that's where the temple was. But all of these different uh, locations, and that brings us to point number one today, embrace my location. Embrace my location. Here's Judah, Judah's um, cities and um, Just a few of them from ancient times. There's Jerusalem. But when we look at all of these cities here, some of those, for those of you that have read the Bible a few times, some of those will stick out in your mind and you'll think, oh, yeah, Jericho. That's actually one of the cities of Judah. And that's where, you know, when initially, when the children of Israel had come out of slavery from Egypt, before their Babylon captivity, they were captives in Egypt a thousand years prior. 1,500 years prior. But they came, and they came through the Sinai Peninsula, and they came around, and they entered, and that was the first battle that they had, was at Jericho. 
And later on, you know, after when Jesus came on the scene, he healed a blind man in Jericho, walking through Jericho. Up here is Bethel. That's where Jacob prayed to God and dedicated his life to the Lord. We've got all these places, Ai. There's Bethlehem. David, of course, born in Bethlehem, and then later on, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Hebron, keep that, that town in your mind. We're going to mention, we're going to talk about that one in just a little bit. But I see all these different towns, and I recognize God did something neat in all of these towns. Through specific individuals in history, God did something cool. Different miracles, different people used in various ways for his kingdom purposes. And now we read that all these people that are returning, there's about 42,000 people that returned, and plus about 7,000 servants, so there's about 50,000 total. That, that's a pretty big group to travel all the way from Babylon back to the area of Judah. They're all, everyone to their own city. And I don't know if, if that's just because home is where the heart is or if that was strategic in, in going back to this area and trying to solidify the entire area. Um, I'm not sure, but I do know that God stirred their heart, and I do know that they went each to their own home cities, and they owned it. They went there and thought about this. What about us? What about our locations? In a prayer, maybe, God stir our hearts for our locations, our people, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our schools, our local businesses, politics, policies. Lord, let us embrace our surroundings, the challenges. So, you know, winter in Wisconsin, right? Or, or Dane County stuff. And uh, difficult coworkers. So our jobs, our marriages, our responsibilities. Um, God, let us embrace our location and invest in our location by your grace. Give us a spirit, stir our hearts to have a passion for and to embrace in whatever ways you've called us to our location, that we wouldn't be quick to run and look for escapes, but we'd walk through these locations by the grace of God, for the glory of God. There's, um, there's the grass is always greener syndrome. You know, we could always move south because the weather's warmer and, and maybe politics are different or, you know, who knows what. Um, we could do the avoid and isolate. We have that syndrome where we just ignore the people around us and we don't engage in the community. We don't engage with people. We live our life. We do what we want, how we want, and we just kind of leave the rest. There's a saying I've heard a few times. It's um, bloom where you're planted. Maybe you've heard that. God grants us or allows for us to be in a place whereby we have opportunity to grow or exercise our faith. And what do we say? Get me out of here. (laughs) We miss the opportunity. We miss the blessing. We miss the hidden gem. We fail the test because we opt out instead of embracing our location, our vocation, our calling. And you know what? There's... I'm not saying there's not a time when God might move us or what, there might be wise or discerning to go or to do something other. But I think too often we're in a hurry to go to the greener grass or to avoid or isolate when maybe God is calling us to embrace and invest in our circle of influence. Ah, these people are holding me back. No, that's where I'm supposed to invest. 
I'm supposed to invest in these people. I think about Caleb. Years before, Caleb gave a great uh, example. Um, <clears throat> when the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt, and then they leave, God uses Moses. They come out of Egypt. They're in the Sinai Peninsula, wandering in the desert for quite some time. They send spies into the land of Canaan, the promised land, um, current-day Israel and that, that area. And two of the spies are Joshua and Caleb, and they go in and they survey the country, and the, the rest of the spies say, oh, the people are too big. Their genetics are, they're ginormous people. They're so strong. Their cities are fortified, and there's no way. But Caleb and Joshua are like, God has given us this. God has told, he's brought us out of Egypt. He's got a plan. We're going to do it. Well, the people of Israel, they're, they're like, oh, no, Caleb and uh, Joshua are overzealous, and, and we're afraid. We're not going in there. And they don't go in there. It's 40 years before the people have the courage. It really, it's their kids that raise up that then have the courage and the faith to go into the promised land. And what happens? Caleb is still alive. He's 85 years of age. And he goes to Joshua, his buddy, who's now in charge after Moses passed away. Joshua's in charge, kind of the leader. And he says, Joshua. He goes, Joshua 14, 12. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. He said, don't give me the easy land. Give me the hardest land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just amazing that an 85-year-old would do that. And he did it. And that's, that was Hebron that we pointed out on the map. Hebron. And it was the high country mountainous, fortified, and huge dudes. That, that's the area where later on when you read about Goliath, it's that neck of the woods where Goliath and a lot of these genetically huge dudes and very strong guys were from. And... and and just, there's, there's a picture of someone embracing a location. Yeah. God stirred his heart and he said, I'm just going to give my life for this. That's right. I'm going to give my life for it. Here's our cities. There we go. This is where we are this morning. Most of you guys can find your city around here. Said, wait, they didn't even write Blue Mounds on there. Insignificant. Oh, okay. Blanchardville, is that down here? I don't know. There's a few of them we don't see. But guys, God has a plan for every one of these towns And he wants to stir our hearts for our region and for our towns in ways that we can impact people for the glory of God. We can help people know who Jesus is and what God's ways are like. They can see it in our lifestyles and in our communication. And that we could strategize for the glory of God and set our hearts as Caleb did to make a difference. How does revival and restoration begin and what steps are necessary? When we read Ezra... And we see these people, we see it starting with prayer, with Daniel praying, people praying. And when they are seeking the Lord, God begins to stir their hearts for something specific. And then they take steps of obedience, steps of faith. They embrace everyone to their own city, embracing their location. And once restoration begins, then that's just the beginning. Then are the testings. And we start now in the book of Ezra, as we move into chapter 2 and 3 and and onward, we start seeing some of the testings that would likely halt or trip up or stop a revival or a restoration. 
And the one we're going to look at this morning is number two in your notes, esteem holiness. Question for us, do we esteem as we should holiness? Ezra chapter two, after it gives all the different people that are going back to the back to the lands and all the different cities, then it says this, it says, Ezra 2, 59 through 63, ones who came up, there's some people that came up with them, but they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. There's a test right here. Um, and, just, and before we look at it, what is, we just say, what's the, what's the Urim and the Thummim? Um, and I came across that, oh, what is that again? I can't remember what that is. Well, here's the priestly garb. So at the time of Moses, Moses' brother Aaron was the high priest for the nation of Israel. And it was his sons that carried out the spiritual teaching and the sacrifices and the, um, uh, carried out the spiritual leadership for the nation. And they had this, everything was symbolic. Everything had a purpose for what they were wearing and how they were wearing it. There's the 12 stones there representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But in a pocket over here, they would have tucked inside was the Urim and the Thummim, which were probably two little rocks or maybe smooth stones, maybe one dark and one clear. And they would pray before God if there was something that they didn't know how to render a verdict or, or what direction the nation should go. They would pray before God and they would cast lots. They would see which one would, would come out or which one would, um, would fall first. And, and that was to them, hey, we're not taking this into our own hands. We, we've tried to think. We've tried to know. We've, we've looked at God's law. We're not quite sure what to do. We're going to give it. We're going to pray and we're just going to allow God, if he will, to determine for us what we should do. I wouldn't quite recommend this type of, um, of um, I think God's now can communicate to us by his Holy Spirit, by the word of God, through wise counsel. But um, at that time, that was something that they did. And, um, and so there's the Urim and the, and the Thummim. But what's going on here, Ezra 2, it says that there's these people that came back that they wanted to be... Um, seen and or part of the Levites and the priests. That's the spiritual leaders of the people. They wanted to be recognized as such. And they're coming back, but they couldn't identify their genealogy or their, or their line. And there was no um, confirmation that they were these people that God had designated to be that for the people. And so um, what's the big deal here? These people are coming back, and that brings us, this is very important, and it's steaming holiness there's a massive misunderstanding throughout most of history and in the church today of this. Massive misunderstanding. Who cares if they can't trace their genealogy? They're willing to serve and they seem friendly. Why not just let them serve? They're smart. They seem genuine. Why not let them serve? And so long as we have that attitude, we are never going to understand and know God. Why? Grace does not mean negligence. Grace does not mean indifference to holiness. Grace is not license for sin. It is grounds for forgiveness and training in righteousness. 
We read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Holiness is important to God. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our ways, our thoughts. And revival and restoration is halted when holiness is compromised. Pay attention to this part. The age of grace in which we now live does not demote holiness, it esteems it. It never underestimates, it never devalues, mocks, or belittles holiness. God's perfect ways and his perfect instructions and his perfect calling, it never does that. Shortchanging or cheating holiness is never a shortcut. We might think, oh, hey, they're here. They're, we, don't, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough priests and Levites. Hey, let's just have them join. Hey, they, they're willing to. They're coming. They're going back to this ruin. They're sacrificing. Let's just let them do it. No, that's not a shortcut. Shortchanging holiness is never a shortcut. And I'm going to just, if you don't know these names, most people probably don't. And so bear with me for a minute. But some of you will recognize Nadab and Abihu. They were priests, sons of, of Aaron. They took unholy fire, they had these censers into the temple of God, as they were not supposed to do, and they were consumed. The fire came and consumed them. I thought, well, that is strict. That's a little over, over uh, judgmental of God for that to happen in that manner. We see Samson, and Samson was given a few specific um, commands, instructions for his life as to how he was to live. He wasn't supposed to touch dead carcass. He wasn't supposed to drink any alcohol. He wasn't supposed to cut his hair. And we see him out, and he's doing each of these. He's walking through vineyards. He's touching dead carcasses. Um, he's marrying a Philistine woman who's an unbeliever, does not believe in Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible, and, and against his mom and dad's advice and instruction. And he's just, he just continually, he's strong, he believes in God, but he devalues or doesn't esteem holiness. And then he eventually has his hair cut because he tells of his secret. And then he loses his eyes. And he, then he loses his life. And I was just talking to my kids. Man, this guy is a, probably one of the strongest guys who ever lived. God used him so mightily. But he had a terrible life. His wife was killed. His father-in-law was killed. He never, it just seemed like he's, nothing ever went his way. Because he's always playing around with Sin and compromising on holiness. Yeah. And um, we see King Saul. King Saul was not a prophet. He was not a priest, but he offered sacrifices in the place where Samuel was supposed to offer sacrifices. He thought, oh, Samuel's not here. It's past time. You're supposed to be here by now. I'll just offer the sacrifices. And we think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, there was, there was, there was a lot of pressure for Saul to do that in that moment. No, do not compromise with holiness. It's not a shortcut. It's not a shortcut. I oftentimes, it's a shortcut. I think it's a shortcut. If I just lie a little bit, you know, to get past this moment, or if I just do, you know, if I just compromise on holiness a little bit, it's not a big deal. It's just for convenience sake. It's so that this, so something good does happen. No, 
No, this is something that we need to learn as a church. It's something that they were aware of. They, they are coming out of captivity, and they're saying the, way, the reason we're in captivity is because we started compromising on things of holiness, and it took our hearts away from God. And then all of this befell us. And now as we're going back, no way we're not going to just say, okay, sure, go for it. Sounds good. We're going to tolerate that. No, we are going to be very strict, not because we're legalistic, but because we really want to do things God's way. We really think that his ways are better than our ways. We really think there's a reason, even if we don't know what it is, we think he, he must have a reason for doing things the way he does them and wanting them to be done a certain way. So we're just going to do it his way. That's it. We're not trying to be legalistic. We just want to do things God's way because we don't want to miss the opportunity or the blessing. We certainly don't want to start going down the wrong path. We want to esteem holiness completely. See Uzzah. Uzzah. So after King Saul came, came King David, King David wanted the Ark of the Covenant, a sacred, uh, the sacred Ark of the Covenant to be brought into the city of Jerusalem. And that would be housed there. And there would be a temple there for the, the Ark of the Covenant. And they, they're bringing this, but they're bringing it on an ox cart with wheels. And not in the prescribed fashion that they were, it was supposed to be carried by poles, by the Levites and the priests. And so it's being brought on this ox cart. One of the oxen stumbles. And, and Uzzah kind of puts his hand up to steady the Ark. And he's struck dead. We're thinking, what? He's trying to, this is a sacred object. He's trying to kind of steady it and God strikes him dead or what? That's, isn't that that harsh or isn't that kind of esteeming holiness? For all the people of Israel to see this being done in the wrong manner undermined all of God's law and all of God's character and all of God's authority They say, it doesn't matter how God wants it done. We'll do it our own way. We'll take care of it. No. No, sir. And that was a lesson, but it was an important lesson for all people to see. Uzzah might be in heaven. I'm not saying he's in hell, but I'm saying his earthly life was cut short. Might have been well-intentioned, but it's not in line with the holiness that God had required of the priests and of that Ark of the Covenant. See King Uzziah, he likewise, he went into the temple and offered sacrifices when only the priests and the Levites were supposed to do that. He was struck with leprosy. In the New Testament, Ananias, Sapphira, hey, we're just going to lie a little bit. We're going to tell the, the church at that time, we're going to tell them that, that we've given all of our money to the church, and really we're going to hold a lot of it back for ourselves, and we kind of double dip uh, in the resource pool and so forth. And uh, not a big deal. We love God. We're going to do, and they're struck dead. That little lie is not that was not going to undermine the entire New Testament and the building of the church that God had planned and the holiness and the character of God and the honesty that needs to be part of the church. Honesty has to be part of the church. The seven sons of Sceva, these guys were um, sons of of the high priest at that time, and they started going around. They, They started seeing the miracles happen through the apostles, and so they started going out and saying, hey, uh, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches about, uh, come out of this person, these demons. We're trying to cast, exor- you know, get, um, cast demons out. And, and in, this, in, this, in this passage, in Acts um, 19, 13 through 16, the demon or demons reply, um, Jesus we know and Paul we've heard about, but who are you? 
And they, these, these guys, these demon-possessed people, um, they, they, they stripped these guys and beat them bad. Right? They didn't die, but they, they got a beating of their lifetime. It's just pictures for us of esteeming holiness. And we need, as a church, you know, revival and restoration. We don't just say, yeah, anything goes. I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. No, no. Holiness matters. And it is ultra important. And the people returning from captivity of Babylon to Jerusalem, they recognize something. We want to be holy. We want to do things God's way. We want to do things God's way. Paul wrote to the New Testament church, they thought they were really spiritual because they're overlooking a whole bunch of sin. They're tolerating a bunch of sin. And they say, hey, we're so spiritual. We believe, hey, sin can abound. That's no problem. That's good. That's fine. We believe in Jesus. He died for us. We're good. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It is actually reported, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is, is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife, and you're puffed up. You know, you're proud of your, you're, you're so spiritual and your tolerance. You're so proud. You're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He was saying, inside the church, now outside the church, unbelievers, fine. We don't expect unbelievers to act like Christians. We don't expect them to prioritize or esteem holiness. But if someone calls himself a Christian and then they're promoting sin and and exalting sin, get them out. It's a, different, it's a different thing to be sorrowful or repentant or to have an addiction or to recognize, hey, my sin's wrong. I need help. I confess my sin. Oh, sure. There's plenty of grace. God's grace can forgive any sin anywhere, anytime for those who are honest about it and humble and repentant. But when we justify, if we deny or justify or promote our sin, there is no grace there. And Paul says, get them out of the church. Turn them over to the world, cast them out in hopes that they will recognize the importance of holiness, that they will recognize the price that Jesus paid for them, the grace that he gave them, is not licensed to sin more, it's a training grounds to grow in righteousness. None of us are perfect in this room, and I'm not perfect, and we have things we're working on, but we don't promote sin, we crucify it, we battle against it. We make no provision for the flesh, but for the spirit. We call it what it is. We call it sin. If I have sin in my life, I call it sin. And maybe I confide in a couple guys that I trust, and they pray for me. And we help one another. We, we memorize scriptures. We have accountability in our life. We challenge each other to do the right thing and to live for God and to esteem holiness. The holiness of God. The holiness of God. Some people think... Well, some people are on the side of holiness, and I'm on the side of grace, or I'm on the, uh, some people are on the side of grace, I'm on the side of holiness. These two are on the same side. They hold hands, and they are one, and you cannot, you cannot um, divide them. And, and here's a little chart I just I found on, online, images. And, and on one side, you know, you lean, you lean this side, 
if you're holiness without grace, you're over here. You're using rules to oppress people. You become self-righteous. You put guilt and shame on people. You're trying to be good enough to warrant salvation or God's heaven. It's prideful. It puffs up. That's legalism. Very zealous for the rules, but not understanding that, that none of us are, are perfect. None of us, we all need God's forgiveness. We all need his spirit in us. It's only by the grace of God. And then over here, license to sin. That's what we've been talking about. It's a loose theology. The roots are not anchored correctly in doctrine. They use it loosely. Cross-references are not, are not um, credible in the way they, they connect. Um, they interpret Scripture in light of their feelings instead of vice versa. And so there's, there's kind of a list. But right in the middle, true freedom is living without condemnation or compromise, following the straight and narrow path. Law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So we esteem holiness and we esteem the grace of God. The grace of God covers our sin and it helps us walk and it helps us to learn holiness. It helps us to grow, to be more like Jesus, more like God. We're commanded and expected to be holy. Leviticus 22:32. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 1 Peter 1, 14, 15. But as he has called you, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We talked about this a little bit, but what about grace? Here it is again, plenty of grace for those who seek forgiveness. There's no sin too big that God will not forgive, providing a person is honest and repentant about it. Jesus died for all sins. There's no grace for those who attempt to deny, justify, or promote their Sin. Sin is never okay. It's not excusable. We either agree. It's important that we agree with God and be forgiven, not disagree with God. So holiness. Um, we're going to skip skip down. Uh, to uh, life church leadership structure. So in Ezra, they were being very careful as to who they had, who, who's going to be teaching the people and what are they going to be teaching the people. And we just let anybody anywhere do whatever because, hey, we want to be tolerant and inclusive and so forth. And they said, no, 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 no. We want to do things God's way. God's ways are best. God's ways are the most loving at the end of the day. And they are the most fair at the end of the day. And so, um, so likewise, at Life Church, we want to have a structure to the best of our ability to ensure um, that we walk in holiness and our leaders walk in holiness and that the church is shepherded in such a way. And so this is kind of what it looks like. Um, there's, there's a first tier where anybody, anywhere, believing anything is welcome here. And we want them to experience the love of Jesus. We want them to experience the truth of God's word. And, and so they are welcome, and we want them here. Yes. 
Um, there's another tier, that's membership. We actually have a membership class today right after the service in the cafe. And, and membership is for those that believe the same things. We agree on a statement of beliefs. And so we know that we are believing certain things, that we are committed towards certain things. We have the same, we have certain expectations of one another because we're on the same team headed in the same direction. We have a vision that we agree to and we're working together in our own circles, in our own locations, embracing our own locations, but we're moving in a certain direction and we're united as brothers and sisters in that, in that um, vision. And that's a membership and we can identify. And so we don't just say to anybody that comes in, oh, you want to teach a class? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Teach our people. And No, we'll pick teachers um, from members, people that we know believe what we believe and have the same commitments to these people um, that we do. And, and, and so that is the membership. A third tier pastoral elder description, that's, that's spoken of in Titus 1, in, second, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, says what those qualifications ought to be for leadership. And so we follow those as well. That brings us to number three. Number three, exemplify leadership. <clears throat> exemplify Leadership. Uh, the next passage that we come to in Ezra 2, 68 through 69, it says, Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Wow, what an example and a challenge to all the people that the heads, they come back, that's a long road from Babylon to Jerusalem and Judah. Come back to the ruins, and I would think, you know, you're already a little anxious, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, you haven't been there, and if you have, it's been 70 years since you've been there, you might have a few 80, 90-year-olds that made that long uh, journey, and, and in fact, there were, there were a number of them that did. But you're coming back and you're thinking, oh boy, do we have enough resources to make this work, to get us off the ground? I mean, to get crops planted and are the crops going to come? And, and or whatever businesses we're, we're doing, or do we have a, a big enough emergency fund here to get us through the next year or two? But what do we see? They get there and the heads of the father's houses lead by example in freely giving toward the work of the temple. They're prioritizing for their family and for their people the spiritual nourishment and the worship of God, first and foremost. And that just makes me think as um, it says, the heads of the father's houses, and want to talk to men just for a second, that when a man steps up, when a man goes to church, when a man teaches kids, when a man gives generously and consistently, when a man demonstrates that something is important, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. There's a lot of statistics we could spit out right now on how that influences a family or a church or a community. Billy Graham said, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Right. 
And that is so true when I see or hear of someone here doing something for the kingdom of God, all of a sudden I have some more energy inside. I'm like, oh yeah, we're making headway. God's doing something. He's using different people in different ways. And, and that, that encourages me to do whatever God has me to do. And I heard a few stories um, just this week. is so cool. Uh, from our men's group, there's, there's a couple guys. One guy was kind of down on it, was having a hard time. I don't know if he lost something or something had broken. I should remember, but I don't. He was at um, a restaurant, and who came into the restaurant was another guy from our men's group. And he heard about it, and he said, I want to pay for that. I want to take care of that. And did, right on the spot. He said, God's been good to me. I want to take care of that. And I heard that story. It's like, oh, yeah. Outside of the walls of the church, we're caring for one another. We're taking care of one another. We're letting the Spirit of God use us to be a blessing. And then I heard of another person from our church um, who is working, and and he provides services at at houses um, in 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 services and and, and, um, and and so anyway he's working he's working and, and then the homeowner said hey you want to uh, offer him a water or something and, and he was talking to the homeowner and heard that the homeowner was going through a difficult time and he said I was afraid inside but I thought I should just offer to pray for him and so he said do you mind if I can I say a prayer for you and they said sure and he prayed for them and they started crying. And um, I just, when I hear some of those stories, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can, I'm, that gives me enough nutrition to keep going for another week, yeah. two weeks, another month. Yeah, yeah. And boy, we get strong when we see each other pulling weight. Yeah. We're carrying weight. I see you carrying weight. We see each other carrying weight. Then, then we get some momentum. Titus 2, 1 through 5 <clears throat> Paul's talking to Timothy. Timothy is a young uh, pastor, pastoring some churches. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Paul's saying, we want right, correct doctrine, not fluffy stuff. We want the real truths of God to be preached. And then he said, number two, uh, verse two, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, in love, in patience, the older women, likewise, they be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They may admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. The word of God may not be blasphemed. And he tells uh, the men in Ephesians, he says, hey, lay down your lives, die for your wives. He tells the women, hey, show your husband's respect. But he's just going through here, older men, older women, that example, that leading by example. One way that we lead is number four, embark despite fear. So I'm sure these guys had fear being in a new place. They were outnumbered. There's 50,000 of them settling in this area, but there was probably hundreds of thousands of people that were there that were not happy that they were coming back. Hundreds of thousands of, 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 call them pagans in the area, they didn't want the Jewish people coming back to that area. Ezra 3, 2 through 4. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the ark. <laughs> built the ark. Now that was Noah. Um, built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Look at this, verse 3. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the feasts of the tabernacles and other appointed feasts. They were fearful, guys. They were fearful, but they stepped forward. Step forward. They were afraid, but they built the altar anyway, and they sacrificed and they worshiped God. They took those baby steps anyway. Don't wait until fear is gone. <clears throat> Scripture is full of men and women doing just this thing. Jesus said in 9 4, He said, I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. I'm, sure, I'm certain Jesus was terrified of the cross, and yet He sent His face like flint to go to Jerusalem and die for the yeah. sins of the people. I think of um, almost every instance in the Bible when we look at people, they have to embark despite fear. Yeah. And one example, Gideon, he had fear. That guy was drenched in fear. He was soaked with fear. Yeah. And he got up in the middle of the night, though, and he destroyed a community idol and an altar that was an abomination to God in their town and among his own people. And then he took 300 men to fight 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites. He had so much fear, just shaken like a leaf in every account we see of him. And yet he's trusting in the Lord and, and taking steps of obedience, embarking despite fear. 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, and that's where it starts again. We're spending time with the Lord, and he stirs a passion in our heart, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. There is plenty of fear in the world around every corner you walk around, plenty of it, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So do we feel the fear? Absolutely. Is it ominous? Certainly. But we have the power and love and the sound mind that God has given us, and so we embark despite fear. Praise God. Um, someone got me on to a, a series on Right Now Media by Bruce Wilkinson uh, it's called The Testing of Your Faith. It's a good series if you have a chance to watch it. The Testing of Your Faith. And he shows a graph that looks something like this. And on that graph, he says, <clears throat> when God calls us to do something, or if it's in obeying something of, of the Lord, um, we see it like, oh, my word, that's a huge cost. I don't know if I can do that. It's really hard. It's really big. And, and we see the reward as being like that. We're like, I'm going to have to give my whole life for this, and, and only this is going to happen for it. When in reality, the cost is this, and the reward is that. And it just keeps going. So true. And we might not see all of this, but this is what's happening. That's what's happening in the spiritual realm and in heaven. Ezra 3, 6 through 7. From the first day of the seventh month, 
They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. They also gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they're embarking despite fear. They don't even have the foundation yet, uh, but they build, an, they build an altar, they worship God anyway. They, build an, they, they don't wait till the temple's built before they start worshiping God. They build the altar and worship God, and from there they start building the temple. They did what they could. They took steps. They did what they could. If you wait for perfect conditions, you might have heard your parents say this to you at some point. If you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get the job done. This faithfulness and small steps, these small beginnings, is one of the primary keys to revival and restoration. Just continued faithfulness, these small steps, embarking despite fear. What can we do? Friends, what can we do? What steps can we take by the grace of God? As he stirs our heart, what can we do? And that brings us to number five, endure the naysayers. Ezra 3, 10 through 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, look at this, I'm just going to stop right there. They're, they build an altar and they pray before they start. Now they get the foundations done and they start worshiping and praising and shouting again. They don't have the building up yet, but they're just praising and worshiping God again with great shouts because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Number 12, verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. I was wondering, were they weeping because of joy, or was it disappointment? And I think it was disappointment. I think that's the right context, because during this exact time that we're reading about, and this is good for you guys to know, is... um, the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah, these are contemporaries of Zerubbabel. And their prophecies are to Zerubbabel and to the people right at that time. So, so you can be reading Ezra and then jump to Haggai and jump to Zechariah to see what these prophets, how they were encouraging the people in Zerubbabel's day. Here's what Haggai said in, in chapter 2, 1 through 5. In the seventh month of the 21st month, Uh, On the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, it is is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when I came, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. That would have been encouraging, what he said there. He says, some of you guys remember the old temple, and this looks like small beginnings compared to that, if you remember that, but he's saying, My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Be strong, Zerubbabel. 
Zechariah, this is what he says. We're just finishing here. Zechariah 4, 6 through 10. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone, that's the final stone, at the top of the wall. The capstone, with shouts of grace, grace to it. Continued, Zechariah 6, uh, 4, 6 through 10. Verse 8, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For you, for, for who has despised the day of small things? Who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. You know, there may be naysayers as you embark despite fear and you start taking steps because God has stirred your heart and you want to be obedient and you're esteeming holiness and you're starting to take steps of obedience that there'll be those who you would think should support you those who you would think would have your back and would be encouraging that will minimize or undermine what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish. Or they'll see what you're doing and not appreciate it for what you're attempting to do. And it said some of the people here, they weeped when they saw the foundation laid. And you could, you could feel that and you could think of that and be like, they're seeing it and they said, this is nothing like what we thought it would be. It's not as big, it's not as grand. It's not, we know what it, the temple used to be and how the people used to be, and this, this isn't what we thought. Coming back, we didn't think that this, this size or this quality or this. And they might not appreciate that God is doing a new thing. And it might be a small beginning. It might be small beginnings. But we are called by Haggai, by Zechariah, not to despise small beginnings but to keep going. Not by might nor by power, but by God's spirit. And he's going to accomplish great and mighty things. Yeah. Last verse, Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And so today, what is your response to God? What is God stirring in your heart calling, passion, mission? Will you, will I embrace your location, vocation, circle of influence? Are you acknowledging and esteeming God's holiness this morning? Will you commit to agreeing with him and doing things his way? How might you lead by example? What steps might you take? Are you waiting for fear to be gone before trusting and obeying? Have you been discouraged by naysayers? And will you press on? Friends, I see God doing awesome things in our region. Big things, amazing things for his glory and honor. People coming to know him and growing in their faith and being equipped and being filled with the spirit and transformed, lives being transformed. Some big things going on. Some big ministries happening. Our school is growing here, 20 students to 40 students to 60 students. I don't know what it'll be this next year. We have some building projects that you're going to hear about in the fall on both sides of this building that are starting to happen too. 
God's doing cool things here, but through us in our own locations, wherever we are in our circles. So you pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this morning. And God, the challenge in your word, the example that we have in Ezra. And um, thank you for your word teaching us, Lord, these these, uh, important important matters, Lord, of holiness. Um, That challenge to step out. And and God, I thank you for, uh, Lord, on our own, oh God, it's burdensome. It's too much if it's up to us, Lord. But if we know that your spirit is with us and that you have called us, and that you are the one to um, see things through. And yet you're the rewarder of those who you've called, Lord. And it's that you can stir our spirit. You can give us both the strength and the mind and the, and the, the ability and even the want to. To live for you. To represent you. To make an impact in our jobs, in our circles of influence, just our few good friends that we know, Lord, how we can encourage them in you, how we can help them rely on you and grow in you, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Give us a passion for that, Lord. We might help our children know you. We could raise our kids to understand and appreciate your ways. Um, Give us a sensitive heart, Lord. Lord, we know it's no mistake that each of us are alive in 2022. We weren't born out of season, Lord. We were born for this day and this time and these locations, wherever you have us or wherever you take us. All hail you, King Jesus. And in your name we pray, amen.